Father, we thank you for this morning, the day that you have given us to remember our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for your great love, your great mercy, that grace has been given to us and grace upon grace, and we've been reminded us, reminded of, of that this morning. We pray, O oh Lord God, that you will be with Jeff as he shares with us the word of God. Very especially, O oh Lord, that you will open our hearts and our ears and our understanding as we listen to your word. Father God, we pray that you will speak to us through your word. Uh, Father, that your word may have an impact in our lives. We pray and commit this time, very especially for Jeff. We ask all of these things and then through the precious name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles with you, we are turning this morning to Genesis chapter 16. And we will take time to read the entire chapter. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant, perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was in the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, son of Sarai, uh, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. 
That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. <clears throat> when I was young, and that's going back a long time, I've waited a long time to be able to say that. But when I was young, sensing the impatience of my youthfulness, my mother would look at me and say, patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Often found in women, never in a man. And because that is true, we have devised other sayings like this one. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And how many times that has been true of my life, and I guess by the nods I'm seeing, true of your life too. But being patient isn't easy. And especially in today's world, because we're living in a world uh, where everything is instant. It used to just be instant coffee, you know, and then they developed instant tea, as if that could ever taste as good as a home brew. And then we have instant cash at the ATM, and we have instant credit. We have instant information. You don't no longer have to wait for the news to be delivered every morning. You just Go into Google and hit the New Zealand Herald and you see it updated moment by moment throughout the day. There's no more waiting for the news. Everything is right there. There's instant communication. Before, we used to write letters to one another. And now to my friends in Canada, I simply press Skype and we have a face-to-face -face conversation for as long as we want. And it's free and it's immediate and we don't have to wait for letters. So the moment there's some news, you just Skype and away you go. And everything is fresh and immediate. And in this immediate world, waiting becomes very hard. I sometimes wonder what's going to happen to the present generation to whom we have delivered a world that is patience-proof, where everything is on immediate demand and we wait for nothing. We are yet to see the results of that. Well, when we come to uh, go shopping now, it gets real frustrating for me. I was in a shoe store the other day buying some shoes for some children in Tonga, and the shop assistant was so slow. I'd done the Lord's Prayer in English in Latin, in Greek, and I was trying to compose myself, but the, uh, the slowness of this uh, salesperson was driving me up the wall until I could bear it no longer, and I said, don't worry about it, I'll come back tomorrow. 
And then you sit behind someone at the lights. And it's like they don't like green, they don't like orange, and they don't like red. They just sit there. And the impatience begins to grow. Well, spare a thought for Sarah and Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, where we were last week, God had covenanted to Abraham that he would have a son. And that son would not be born to Eliezer. It would be born to Abram himself out of his own body. God would make of Abraham a great nation. And he would give him the land of Canaan. And through Abraham, God would bless the world. Now, the interesting thing is that blessing the world is predicated on creating a great nation in the land of Canaan. It wasn't just that Abraham was going to bless the world regardless. The way God would bless the world through Abraham is he would make of him a great nation and put him in that covenanted land forever. And in order to make this great nation through whom God would bless the world, God promised the land. Now last week we said that that land was a literal land. And God said to Abram in Genesis chapter 13, I want you to go walk through the length and the breadth of that land. So let's not spiritualize the land. The land we are talking about is the ancient land of Canaan that God had covenanted to the nation Israel. Of course, when Abraham got into the land, all was not good. It was meant to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It was meant to be a wonderfully fertile land. But you know from Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham got there, he found a famine in the land. And instead of waiting in the land that God had covenanted to him, And instead of consulting God and waiting on God to uh, answer his promise, Abram took things into his own hand and he went down into Egypt. The other thing God had promised is not only that he would give Abram this great land, but he would give Abram descendants and a son from his own body. Well, when Abraham came to the land, here's an obstacle, there's a famine. And when it came to the promise of a son, here's another obstacle. Sarah is barren. It is not just that she has passed the age of fertility. It is that she has never delivered Abraham a child in all their married years together. She was infertile. Now in the ancient world, that was a huge issue. Because in the ancient world, marriage was not so much for companionship as it was for the procreation of a family so that a man would have an heir and descendants to whom he could leave the inheritance. And so for a woman to be unable to bear children was a great shame. Archaeologists have discovered in ancient writings that uh, society had so uh, embraced that shame that they had provided for a man, if his wife could not have children, that he could take a concubine 
and have children to her. And in that way would raise up an heir for his household. Now this was not a lustful, immoral kind of a thing, though it was less than what the Creator had planned. This was simply an arrangement for the procreation of an heir. And uh, when we come to the story, here is this huge obstacle. Sarah is barren. There are four parts to the story of Hagar and Ishmael. The first is the predicament Hagar finds herself in, and that is the state of barrenness. Back in Genesis chapter 1, you will remember that when God saw that he had created man and woman, he blessed them, and in blessing them, he said, I want you to increase and multiply and fill the earth. When you read about God making the animals, he made them also male and female. And Genesis chapter 1 tells us he blessed them and told them to multiply after their own kind and fill the earth. So that the blessing of God was associated with fertility. The great shame that Sarah finds herself in in Genesis chapter 16 is that she is not apparently under the blessing of God. She's infertile. It is interesting that when you follow the story through in the book of Genesis, the covenant passes from Abraham to Isaac. And Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is also barren. After Isaac, the covenant passes to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, and Jacob's wife Rachel is also barren. So there are three great covenant leaders in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though God has said to Abram, I'm going to make your descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, his wife is barren, his son's wife is barren, and his grandson's wife is barren. And you say, this is not a good start to the promise. But the fascinating thing about this is that God has said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation. And Israel, whatever it was to be, was to be a God-manufactured nation. It was not to be a nation built on human ingenuity or human strength or human prowess. This was a nation that was being specially constituted and created by God himself. And so God intervenes in the life of Abraham, in the life of Isaac and Rebekah, in the life of Jacob and Rachel, and brings through divine intervention the descendants that he had promised. Incidentally, though we'll get into it next week in Genesis chapter 17, it seems to me this is the reason for circumcision in the Old Testament. I've often looked at the whole uh, rite of circumcision and said, Lord, I don't understand why this has to be uh, uh, the, the mark of the Jewish nation. I would far prefer you'd said every Jew has to wear a purple hat or every Jew has to wear red socks 
why in the world would you give the mark of circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? It seems to me that uh, the mark of circumcision in the procreative organ of the male is simply to say, don't think you will make of yourselves a great nation. Every time you people reproduce, I want you to know at the back of this stands Almighty God. And you will not make of yourselves a great nation. I want you to know that in the very procreative act, I have made a covenant with you, and your future depends not on yourselves, but it depends on me. So the males must be circumcised, and though the females are barren, God intervenes and... Uh, provides the descendants. Well, Sarah finds herself in this terrible predicament. The next part of the story takes us to the presumption, and Hagar, after a long time, says, Abram, God has promised us descendants. He's promised to make of us a great nation, and it isn't happening. Obviously, Abram still had the ability to father children because he fathered a child to Hagar. But for Sarah, there was no way it was happening. And so, in keeping with the custom of her time and in keeping with social and civil laws of her time, Hagar, uh, Sarah takes Hagar and gives her to her husband to be his wife. And through Hagar, Sarah says, I will build a family through her, which you will see in verse 2. It's not just that Sarah is thinking of the divine promise, but she's also thinking of her shame. And here is a way that she can obviate her childlessness and she will get a family and build a family of her own through Hagar. And so she takes Hagar and gives her to Abram. Now, before we get too rough with Sarah, we have to understand that God had told Abram, I will make a great nation of you. It's not until you get to Genesis chapter 17 that God says that will come through Sarah. So at the moment, I think we need to have a little bit of patience with Sarah herself. She's a woman who believes the promise of God, and though her faith is faulty at this point, instead of waiting on God and consulting God about the situation, she takes the matter into her own hands, and uh, she does it. Now, it seems to me that with Sarah, you're caught either way. You're either waiting forever on God, or you're saying, maybe I need to take some initiative here. I'm made in the image and likeness of God. Maybe I need to make sure I do something to ensure the blessing of God happens. So I'm standing back a little bit this morning and paying some respect to Sarah and to Abraham for all that matter, because it seems to me that they had the right concept but the wrong method. They had the right belief, but they were going about it the wrong way. And Sarah then presumes to do for God what he had promised to do for Abraham and for Sarah. The third part of the story takes us to the problems. 
The moment Hagar falls pregnant, she despises her mistress, Sarah, and this creates enormous friction to the point where you read in the text that Sarah mistreated Hagar so that Hagar fled from her, verse 6. And it seems that when Hagar fell pregnant and was bearing Abraham's child, uh, she felt that she was no longer the servant, that she was equal with Sarah in the household, and to that degree she was despising Sarah, and Sarah reacts, and Hagar flees. The fourth part of the story takes us to Hagar's flight. It seems that she's on her way back to Egypt, to her homeland. You will remember that when Abram went down into Egypt, he came out and Pharaoh gave him many gifts. It could be that Hagar was one of the gifts that Pharaoh, Pharaoh had given to Abraham. We don't know that, but it's entirely possible. Hagar is now on her way back to Egypt with her son. They're out in the desert. They're sitting by a well, probably because of the uh, likelihood of dehydration. Maybe uh, her son's life was threatened at this point. We don't know. But there the angel of the Lord meets her. And the angel of the Lord tells her she's to return to Sarah, and that God will bless her. Now, come with me down to verse 11, and you will see the blessing. The angel of the Lord also said to you, Now with child you will have a son, and you will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And then the angel of the Lord describes Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, all that simply means, if you read the Old Testament, is that like a wild donkey roams through all of the arid country, this man will also be nomadic. He will be a wanderer. He will be a nomad. But there is more said about Ishmael in verse 12. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. This fellow is going to uh, spawn uh, uh, an, an aggravating uh, and, and contentious uh, line after him. He will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. So you know immediately, though Ishmael is born, and though he is uh, blessed of God, uh, and though Hagar is blessed of God, Ishmael is going to be a problem. And for those of us who know the history of the Old Testament, uh, Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, and the tension between the Jews and the Arabs, which is the center of world attention even now, goes right back to the half hour Abram spent in the tent with Hagar. It has created a problem that will not go away until the return of Jesus Christ. If I'm reading this book correctly, the book of Revelation tells us that at the final conflagration, the world powers will meet in hostility and the war will be a religious war. 
It'll be a war that focuses on the nation of Israel. And the big question in the end time, as it is now, is does this land belong to Israel? And are the Jews nationally, politically, geographically, the chosen people of God? And uh, that will be the issue. It's the issue now. It will be the issue at the return of Christ as well. And so uh, Ishmael is born out of uh, a genuine attempt to fulfill the promise of God in the wrong way. And it becomes a problem forever. Abram eventually gives the boy the name Ishmael. Interesting, really. Because God never told Abram to call him Ishmael. God told Hagar to call him Ishmael. And she must have gone back to Abram, and Abram must have been thoroughly convinced of the visitation of the angel of the Lord. And based upon Hagar's testimony, Abram calls the boy Ishmael. Now we know that Abram loved this boy. It was uh, a son of his own flesh. Come with me over to Genesis chapter 17. Put your finger, if you will, on verse 18. And Abram said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, just as uh, in the land of Israel. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abram, God went up from him. But you can see Abram's love for Ishmael. Oh, that this son of mine might be the one to inherit the blessing that you covenanted to me in Genesis chapter 15. And the Lord says, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to multiply his numbers. He's going to be a great force in the world. But the covenant is not with him. The covenant is with Isaac and his descendants. Now from this, there are four things I want to draw our attention to. The first thing is this. The covenant is not with Ishmael. The covenant is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Ishmaelites, as you go through the Old Testament, are a perennial problem for the nation of Israel. They become their sworn enemy. But God's covenant is with the Jewish people. In order for that covenant to be fulfilled, the Jewish people must fulfill it politically. They must fulfill it literally. They must fulfill it nationally. They must fulfill it spiritually. And they must fulfill it continually. They must be in the land forever and forever. 
So the Abrahamic covenant is not yet completed. It hasn't been fulfilled. It is awaiting fulfillment. And at the back of it is the sworn blood covenant of God that if this covenant is, is not fulfilled, God himself must go out of existence. But I want us to understand at this point, it's very, very important. In a world of relativism, we get this. The God of heaven has entered into legal contract with the nation of Israel. And through that special people, in that special place, God has a special purpose to bless the world. He will do it through the revelation of himself, through no other nation. He will do it not only through the revelation of the prophets, but he will do it through the incarnation of himself. God will come into human form, and he will come into human form as the Jewish Messiah. And the sins of the world will be dealt with in the physical death and resurrection of the Jewish Messiah outside of whom there is no forgiveness, outside of whom there is no uh, promise of everlasting life. So when we come to this whole idea of religious uh, relativism and culture and the various religions of the world, uh, our idea that one must only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ is rooted not in the New Testament, but in the covenant made with Abraham. Through you and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And if you want to know why, as young people, our salvation is only through Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, it's because of this covenant God has made with Abraham. Here's the second thing I want us to notice. Gentile blessing, both spiritual and political, comes from the covenant nation. Now, Hagar was an Egyptian. We know that from verse 1. Does God care about the Egyptians? Of course he does. Does God care about all the peoples of the earth? Or does he just care about the Jews? See, we need to be careful here. God loves the whole world. He cares about all the peoples of the earth. The way he's going to bless them is through this one special nation. Now, after Sarah gives Hagar a hard time, such that she packs her bag and runs, God meets her in the desert on the way back to Egypt. And he says, Hagar, you need to do an about turn. Do a 180, because you are going back to Sarah. And when you go back to Sarah and submit to her, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make out of your son Ishmael a great nation and he will be fruitful and he will be a significant individual and he will have the blessing of God upon him. But you must return to the covenant family. You must return to the covenant nation because your blessing is dependent upon your relationship with that nation. Now don't forget Genesis chapter 12. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, honestly, folks, I stand back and I look at that and say this. There it is. The blessing and the cursing is determined by one's relationship with the special nation that God has set apart to be the vehicle of his blessing. 
Now that's true about spiritual salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's true politically as well that God has established this principle that if we bless Israel, the nations who bless her will come under the blessing of God. And if we curse her, we will come under the curses. Now here's the deal. To curse Israel is not to go get some black magic and consult a witch and bring down some curse. It simply means to despise Israel, to treat her lightly, to treat her insignificantly, to not acknowledge her special place in the plan and the purpose of God. That opens a nation to the judgment of the Almighty, which doesn't always come at the end of the week. Here is a third thing I think that's important. Our weaknesses are often in the area of our greatest strengths. If I said to you, what is Abraham known for above and beyond anything else? You would say he's the man of faith, wouldn't you? Well, if you read your New Testament, you would. Because in Romans chapter 4, after Paul is talking about the principle of faith by which we're saved, he pulls out two big guns of the Old Testament. One is Abraham, one is David. And in Romans 4, Abraham was the model of faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when you move over into the book of Hebrews, who's the central figure that's the model of faith? Why, it's Abraham. And yet it is this great character, Abraham, who falls in the area of his greatest strength. His greatest strength was his capacity to believe God. But when the famine came, he didn't wait for God, he didn't trust God, he didn't consult God, he was up and gone down to Egypt. When it came to the barrenness of his wife, he didn't consult God, he didn't wait for God, he simply said, okay, Hagar, uh, Sarah, I'm listening to you. Let's, let's bring about this uh, promise through Hagar. Now, I go over to the life of David, and here was a man who was passionate for the living God, but in the area of his greatest strength, his love and his passion for the Almighty, he fell. And his love and his passion for Bathsheba has marked his life for the rest of time. You know, here's the interesting thing. We often do not fall in the area of our weakness. We often fall in the area of our strength. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he falls. Here's the fourth thing I want us to think about this morning. God's delays are opportunities for our growth and his glory. As I read the story of Hagar and Ishmael, I've got a lot of sympathy for Abraham and Sarah. It's like they're shut up in a room that has no windows and no doors. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to raise a son from your own body. And your nation is going to become a great nation. As many as the stars of the sky and the dust of the earth, the sand of the seashore. That's not to say Israel will be the most populous nation ever in history, but it's hyperbole to say you're beginning with a barren woman, but you're going to become a very significant nation. 
Now, how long do you have to wait for that? How long do you have to wait for that? Well, Abraham was in the land 10 years. And 10 years, still nothing has happened. And so after 10 years, Sarah says, I think we better help the Lord out here. And even after Ishmael is born, and God says the promise isn't through him, it's another 13 years they wait for the arrival of the promised child. And I look at that and say, God, why? When you promised Abraham a son, why didn't you just deliver him the next year? Why didn't you deliver him three years from then? Why do you have to drag this out into an impossible waiting time? And I think the answer is not only is God doing something in Abraham, but this whole business is about the glory of God. It's about God waiting until there is no other possible explanation for the greatness of this nation other than his divine intervention. Let me speak seriously to you, if I can, these closing five minutes. I am deeply concerned over what I call the juvenilization of Christianity. We have become an immature, juvenile bunch of people, religiously speaking. And when I say we have become juvenile, and when I'm talking about the juvenilization of Christianity, I'm going back to think about what a juvenile is all about. And if you go back to early adolescence, and you've got young teenagers, and you remember back to when the crust of the earth was warm and you were a teenager, the characteristic of teenagers, as far as I remember, and I was a social worker with teenagers for a number of years, is that... uh, The world revolves around them. Isn't that true? Now, that's not a negative, because I can remember that for myself. It's just that we haven't had enough time. We haven't had enough exposure to reality. We haven't had enough uh, taste of life to, to understand the world a different way. But we're growing up, and all of our lives, our parents have looked after us and treated us and done this for us. They started off uh, bathing us and caring for us and feeding us, and we were the center of their world. And you're coming into adolescence with that same understanding that we're the center of the world. takes a while to realize we're not. Now, that's the mark to me of a juvenile. Someone who doesn't understand the wider context of life. Someone who really believes that they're at the center and their needs and their happiness and their immediate gratification is what it's all about. Now, let me apply that juvenilization to religious experience. Uh, I was blown away this week as I watched a clip on, on, on the internet of Joel Osteen. Now, some of you will know who I'm talking about. His wife is standing up in front of the church and saying, the supreme issue is your happiness. God will be happy when you are happy. We're buying this the whole time. And so religious experience now is about me. It's about consumerism. It's about my happiness, my safety, 
my health, my goodness, my experience. It's all about me. And God is there to make me happy. And I'm the center of the world. Well, you know, the reason it seems to me is why God left Abraham and Sarah so long is so he could reveal his glory. He is the living God who can intervene in an impossible situation and bring about the reality of the promise for his own glory. And that's what this whole show is about. It's about the glory of God. Why did God create the world in the first place? Why is there anything instead of nothing? It's about the manifestation of his glory. Why did God create the nation of Israel? For his glory. In fact, as you go through Isaiah, he is called Israel, my glory. Why? Because God's glory is going to be manifest in this nation. What's the culmination of human history? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for me, 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Ephesians 1, you are saved, you are redeemed, you are forgiven to the praise of His glory. Now in the juvenilization of evangelical Christianity, we've lost this. And I believe it's the call of the word this morning to say, we are not the center. He is the center. And this is not about us. This is about his glory. He forgives me for the praise of his glory. He saved me for the praise of his glory. He deals with me for the praise of his glory. It is about him and not about me. And that's why Abraham and Sarah have to wait for that moment when God can intervene and say, Abraham and Sarah, this is not about you or your happiness or your urgent need to have a baby. This is about the manifestation of my glory. And when the time is right for me to intervene and reveal who I am, I'll do it. But it's about me. It's not about you. And isn't that the way it should be? Isn't that the way it should be? I was over in uh, Adelaide some time ago teaching at the college over there, and one of the churches had a, <clears throat> had a beautiful uh, camp down in Victor Harbor. I was to speak there for the weekend, and uh, I duly went down and delivered some addresses for them, had a great weekend, and then uh, I ventured into Victor Harbor and I, I saw an art gallery and that's where my knees wobble and my checkbook falls open. And uh, I went in and I saw uh, some wonderful Australian art. And there was a, a, a picture in that gallery that caught my attention. It was of an African woman. The name of the piece was 
quiet beauty. And it was the most extraordinary uh, portrait I have ever seen done by an Australian artist in pastel. While I, uh, I looked at that thing, every move I made in the room, she seemed to be following me, which was a divine sign. And I thought, this is one picture I cannot afford to miss. But I looked at the price and I walked away. I got in the car, drove back to Adelaide, staying with my hosts. I said, I saw a painting today that I'd give my right arm for. They said, why didn't you buy it? I said, it was too expensive. They said, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You should have got it. I said, I know. Go back and get it. No. It's a three-hour drive there and a three-hour drive back. I'm not doing that. So after I finished at the college, I kept thinking of this picture, and I took a little rental car, and I drove from Adelaide right up through the outback to Brisbane. It took me seven days, and every day I thought of quiet beauty. What a foolish decision. I got to Brisbane. I visited with a cousin of mine, and I said, I've made the most stupid decision in the world. I saw a beautiful painting. All I can think of is this painting. He said, call them up. Get them to ship it to Brisbane. I said, it's too expensive. Leave it. Well, I got on the plane and came home and all the way across the Tasman, all I could think of was quiet beauty. And I was getting further and further and further away. Well, I don't know what possessed me, but I got on the internet. Everything's instant these days. And I looked up the art gallery. And then I called them up and I said, I was in there recently, a couple of months back, and you had a painting called Quiet Beauty. She said, it's still here, it's on the wall. I said, would there be a chance if I sent you the money you could post that picture? She said, there certainly would, and we'll take it out of the frame and give you $100 off. Now, if that's not an answer to prayer, what is? You know what I'm saying? 100 bucks off. And eventually, through the post, there came this big tube and I unraveled this beautiful painting. I took it to the framer and I got it framed in a lovely frame befitting the beautiful work of art. And then I took it home and I hung it on the back of my bathroom door. No, you laugh because you say you didn't. Of course I didn't. I chose the central place in my home because this work of art demands it. It demands that it be seen. And God is so infinitely perfect, so infinitely wonderful. He has to have the central place because life is not about us. It's about him. He is worthy to have all of the glory. And that's what was at stake with Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. And you and I will live to see the day when his glory will be established on this earth in the very place he made the promise to Abraham. And the living Lord of glory will return to this earth 
establish his kingdom in Israel. And the glory of the Lord will cover the entire planet as the waters cover the sea. And then we will realize it's all about him. And now, our Father, we do pray that you will give us this focus. Sometimes we're after the blessings instead of the blessor. Sometimes we're preoccupied with the gifts instead of the giver. And would you, in these superficial days, deepen our faith and fix our gaze upon you, that we might live for your glory and your honor. Be pleased to accept our worship and praise in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.